Um, we're looking at Philippians 2. Kind of skipped over Ephesians, but we'll get back to Ephesians uh, in a couple weeks. Um, so I kind of titled this, When Giving Up is Gain. Um, and so last week when we looked at uh, the beginning of Philippians chapter 2, um, we saw that you know Paul's greatest emphasis that he wanted for the church is to be united. And so his path to unity, right, is giving up the idea that you are important and then by serving others. And so how do we serve others? We look at Christ's example, putting others first. So let me pray and then uh, we'll, we'll do kind of a quick recap on that and then uh, jump into the rest of our verses today. So, um, when we think again about like that idea of church unity, right? Uh, Paul said that we do nothing out of selfish ambition, but in humility, count others as what? What was that? Yeah. So more significant, right, than ourselves, and so. That idea of counting others more significant than ourselves, we're, we're going to go a little bit further with this, not even with this week, but even, even in further weeks um, when we get to Ephesians. But, but what does that look like? What are the boots on the ground of, of how that's lived out? And the first step and the first place to go is to look at Jesus, right? So Jesus gave up his, his unlimited form as God, right? All the omnis, the omnipresence, the omni... Uh, potence, right? <laughs> the omnipotence, his power, um, and even his omniscience uh, in many cases, right? All of those things that he gave up and he adopted the human form, which has with it, right, this idea of being a slave. And so that's what Paul said, that Jesus gave that up to be a slave. Slave to what? Well, not only just the fleshly desires, right? The things that we are accustomed to, temptations, um, the uh, you know, need for food, the need for rest, uh, the emotions that we feel, um, but also the idea that, again, when you are creator, the creation is made to serve the creator, and he took on that form, right, to be obedient to whatever the Father desired. So instead of, <clears throat> you know, if you think like in, you know, eternity past being um, as the triune God and doing planning and purposing for what the universe is going to do, there's the fact that Jesus stepped into the universe, right, and did the will of the Father. And so we see that in many examples throughout Scripture, and we've, we've seen that in many studies that we've had um, in, uh, in even our own study. And so Philippians 2.7, you know, Jesus, we saw that Jesus said, that, you know, or Paul said that Jesus emptied himself. Um, and I mentioned the term, right, for empty is this term kenosis. And again, we kind of talked about what that looked like, right? And again, it's not divesting all of his attributes because, you know, we say like, you know, I said that he gave up his omnipotence, but there were times that we saw the power of God, right? What would be examples of that? Through Jesus himself. Yeah, so transfiguration, what I hear over here? Healing, okay, many of the miracles that he's done, bringing sight, having people walk, raise the dead, 
right? Calming storms, multiplying food, you know, all of these things. So we see the power of God through Jesus um, that is seen. So some of that is there, even like his omniscience, right? He knew what was in their hearts. Is it that he just had really good intuition? It was more than that, right? He understood what they were thinking to the level that he would say something that would answer the questions within their heart. But then there are other times that he said that, you know, as far as like when, um, you know, the day of judgment is going to happen. That's something that only the Father knows. So there was a limiting, right, of what he can do. And then obviously, like, where he was at locally, he was a man that walked amongst uh, the people. And so he couldn't just be here or there being in his human form. And so this idea then, again, of, so of emptying his attributes, is it, you know, becoming less than God? Well, no, that's something that's affirmed in, in many of the creeds that... Um, Jesus was fully man and fully God, but as we say that he's fully man and fully God, what does it mean that he emptied himself? And so you know, I think Greg had mentioned, you know, like it's kind of this laying aside or really giving up some of the privileges that came along with his role, right? Being, you know, if you think of like the, the picture of being in this throne room in heaven um, and laying that aside again to become human. And to, again, be uh, not only born, but raised, having adolescence, having teenage years, having all the things that came up with, you know, again, physically growing, physically suffering, understanding what it means to be made fun of, what it means to have a loss, and all of these things, those are the things that Jesus took on and the privileges that he gave up. But we're going to see that, you know, the Father, you know, as... as um, as a result of taking, you know, giving aside, again, this authority to take up a place of obedience under the Father, that the Father actually responds to that obedience, right? This obedience did not go unrewarded. Because Paul would say that, right, he took that obedience even to the fullest measure, which was death, even death on a cross, and what that meant, right, and the, the humiliating factor of what that looked like. We've talked about that in the past. So we're going to pick up in uh, verse 9 um, in Philippians 2. That's kind of where we stopped was verse 8. And so we see, you know, that according to verse 9, Jesus' obedience achieved something. And, and what is it that that obedience achieved from the Father? Okay, so this, this kind of exaltation, right, this raising up, this place of prominence, you know, it, it is, right, the highest elevation or highest exaltation that could be achieved. Um, meaning, everyone at some point, right, there are some people that if you talk about Jesus, they either didn't grow up in a religious household, they may know, um, have heard the name Jesus, I think there's going to be lots of Super Bowl ads tonight, you know, and even there's uh, there's one that that's supposedly. Have you guys seen this? Um, he is us. I think is the oh he gets us right. He gets us right. So that's um, even you know trying to trying to at least at some point reach out and kind of make a connection that this this Jesus right is somebody that we can identify with, and so you know there is is those means, but 
everyone is going to know his name, right? There is going to be a place that is not mistaken who Jesus is, you know, in all of creation. When I say all of creation and all of humanity. And so what is going to be the result, right, of not only knowing his name, but at the hearing of his name? What does it say? Every knee will bow. And so what does that what does that indicate for every knee bowing before Jesus? Okay. And so for most of us, right, you know, the common folk, right? That's kind of something like that we can understand. But if you get you kind of even think like those that are in places of power, right? Even of the highest achievement, those that are were in were kings or queens or presidents or emperors, right, of the highest uh, political or, you know, place of power, that all of them will bow the knee to Jesus. This man that, you know, walked the earth in a small, you know, unknown country to many people in Israel, and for the, you know, for the most part, just somebody who they didn't worship, they didn't serve, and didn't even think about on a day-to-day basis, but even them, who were used to having people bow before them, that they will bow before the name of Jesus. Not only them, but who else will bow before Jesus? What's that? Well, every man. Yeah, so you got those on earth, right, but also those in heaven. So the idea, again, that all angels, right, we know that angels serve, uh, serve God, but they serve Jesus and they bow to Jesus. Like, every demon who rebelled bows to Jesus. And even Satan himself bows to Jesus. And so, all of them will be humbled before Jesus. And this was not his doing, but it was the Father's doing. And in addition to that, what else will they do? Confess, confess what? They'll confess that he's Lord. Yeah, that Jesus is Lord. And so, why, why this idea of confession? I had you guys confess a little bit. <laughs> well, what's this idea of confession? What's that? To agree, okay. To acknowledge or affirm. Yeah, and, that, and that's how it's actually understood. The, the word itself means to soil outwardly. It's like any, so airing of dirty laundry is how we would probably say it, right? So um, if you have anything, right, that's hidden, anything that is covered up, um, that idea of confession is bringing it out to light. And so within that confession is really an understanding of the denial throughout someone's life, right? That they didn't humble themselves. They didn't acknowledge Jesus is, is who he was. And so this idea of admitting and professing and, you know, publicly sharing who Christ is, not just that, Christ is God, but Christ is their Lord, is something that they would admit freely 
which shows that throughout their life that they were wrong about how they lived their life. And so this is a humbling that will happen to every person. And so Paul, in a way, is kind of like sharing with us that, you know, we can, you know, again, the purpose to be unified with one another is to, again, think others as more significant than ourselves. And so how did Jesus do that? He humbled himself and he humbled himself to the point that, again, he walked the earth and he died and he did it for us and even the people that would deny him. But at some point, that role will be reversed and that everyone will humble themselves before Jesus at one point or another. So he's actually saying, you could either do it now or you can do it later without going into so many words. Yeah, Randy? But again, we're talking about Yeah. The revelation of Christ. And as you point out, up to this point, all men have denied that reality. And even we, those who have been given the divine faith to believe, still daily deny his authority in our life. Yeah. Just in the struggle with sin. But even at that point, uh, that confession. So to think about the humility that we ought to manifest now, because Christians have are prone to be prideful to read this and say, oh yeah, I've already confessed it. This is just, now everybody's going to agree with us. Yeah. No, this is, we are denied, except by the grace of God and His divine work in us. So, the, the call to then empty ourselves of that is really the process of our salvation. And we have to die to that pride and put ourselves yeah, and, and again, I, and I love how you kind of mentioned that, like this idea, right, of Jesus' Lord is not Lord at one point, right? It's Lord as now and always, right? And so even if you think from a time standpoint, everyone will confess Jesus as Lord. It's the idea of, again, aligning our hearts and our wills to his will and making him our Lord. And understanding, right, this not only like that everyone will confess, but that that should affect us and humble us even now. So why do you think Paul kind of shares this idea? I mean, we kind of talked about a couple things, right? But why share that, like, through Jesus's, you know, Jesus being the example and through his humility, that God is going to exalt him? Is there anything else going on with why you think that that might be the case? Okay, so you've got you've got that idea, right? Of kind of like what what you know will happen in the future, and so that's an encouragement to us. What else? Yeah. So for us, what what's something that awaits us in the future? Yeah. And so there will be this kind of heavenly reward where there won't be sin. There will be a, a, a free worship of God, right? Um, and to enjoy the new heavens and the earth, right? We know that that's our future. But knowing that that is our future, 
right? How does that impact us now? Well, hopefully, it may be like Chris said, it like is an encouragement to us, and we kind of know, you know, what that future holds. But but for us, right, it's kind of delayed gratification, right? Obedience now, and not saying like obedience now comes with <laughs> anything negative, right? And the opposite, right? It's exactly like how God wants us to live. Obedience now is actually experiencing. Um, that paradise that was lost in being able to do the will of the Father. But we live in such a you know, narcissistic world that kind of puts our own desires first and wants immediate gratification that gratification or reward will come later with the obedience that we have now. But also knowing, again, that obedience now is as Paul would say in other places, to share in the sufferings of Christ and to do the things that, you know, make us partnership with the gospel of Jesus Christ. <clears throat> it also helps us to understand, right, when we, when we look around the world around us, like the worth that people have is in their titles, in their jobs, in their status, in the honor that they get, the accolades that they get, but our worth is none of that. Our worth is in Christ alone. And we've talked about that, you know, to a, a full extent. But again, Paul is just kind of echoing some of those things and reminding the Philippians of those things as he's wanting them again. You know, his main purpose is, I want you guys to be together and to be united. We'll continue on what that looks like in just a second, right? And so Jesus is going to, again, take the, the highest place of honor, right? Or he was at the highest place of honor, and he took a place of um, dishonor, uh, not for a moment, right, but for his lifetime. And he did it for us. And one day, we will all recognize that and be humbled before him. So verse 12, we read, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. So what do you think that Paul means when he tells the Philippians to work out your own salvation? What's that? Okay. Okay, so there's, there's, uh, there's the aspect of sanctification, right, where we are working out our own salvation. Um, but what does this also come on the heels of, right, this confession before Christ? And so what do you think when he says kind of a, to work out your own salvation?
Yeah, and I think it, again, it depends on like the audience, right? Of who. Well, there's there's an examination, right, to work out, right, your your own salvation. Like, what does that mean individually? Um, when we think about, you know, particularly understanding who Christ was, what he did, and then the fact that all every knee will bow. What did Jesus say, right, that some will, um, you know, come to him and say, Lord, Lord, and what would his response be? Yeah. And so it's like, we did all these things in your name, right? And so there's this understanding, right, at some point you're going to bow the knee before Jesus, but work out, you need to work out your own salvation and the fact that, like, are you truly saved or have you been deceiving yourself? Because he, he kind of connects with that, right? Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, right? What's the fear and trembling connected to? Okay, so his holiness, what's that? Yeah, and there's a lot of people, right, who may not be in Christ now, but at what point will it really matter? At what point is it, you know, set in stone? Yeah, at the point where everyone's going to bow the knee before Christ and confess Him as Lord. They confess Him as Lord as, you know, as you are Lord, but I never, but He never knew them. Or you are Lord and you are you know, a good and faithful servant. And so this idea of in fear and trembling, right, is, is really in light of judgment, right? Before a holy God, we're going to stand before him and, you know, have to, you know, and, and again, be judged whether we are in Christ or not in Christ. But regardless, whether we're in Christ or not, we're all going to bow the knee. And so it just kind of works out that, that same idea, right, of understanding who God is. And when we understand who God is, there should be an element of, of fear. When we talk about fa- the loving the Father, loving you know, a holy God, but also there's an element of fearing Him because there is a judgment to come, because of what He can do. And if you look back at all the judgments that have happened on this earth, where you think like, you know, He wiped out all of humanity um, and built a boat, you know, and... So, and some songs are like, I'm going to build a boat, right? And so you just think of like what the gravity of that situation was of understanding um, that everybody was judged at that moment. Millions of people, you know, we look at at the sufferings now of even, you know, the earthquake in in Turkey and Syria where it's how many people are, are affected by that. There's thousands, right? But that's, again, small in comparison to... Uh, the ultimate judgment. So there should be a fear that comes along with who God is and all the characteristics of who God is. And that's something that, you know, Paul is, you know, wanting them to understand who they are in Christ, right? To, to you've always obeyed, right? But in my absence, I want you to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, always going, right, and asking yourself, um, you know, how am I serving God freely and fully. But it's not about like in your own means because Paul says this in verse 13, how can this working out be accomplished? Because we want to avoid the temptation of, right, if I there's certain things I just do more, and we, we've talked about that again in past uh, this idea of works, but how do we accomplish this working out of our own salvation? Yeah. 
Yeah, right. That's what, that's what verse 13 says. It is God who works in you, right? Which also is the understanding that in order to work out this salvation, it is God who does that in you and through you. And so this is a continual, um, again, examination of our hearts and our understanding of are we uh, obeying ourselves or are we obeying Christ in what we are trying to accomplish. Because he says that it is God's, you know, God who does it, really God's spirit who does it, to both to will and to work, right? We understand, you know, our, our wickedness, our understand our self-exaltation, um, and we need to examine our hearts, right? But it is God who does the working, the convicting, the leading through his spirit, and so what is ultimately God's will? Well, 1 Timothy 2 says, This is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God and our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Right? That is God's hope, that is God's heart, is that all people will be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth because they are blinded by they're sin, and they're blinded by the works of Satan in our culture. And Paul says, right, it is a work for his good pleasure. That's a, ultimately, right, that God's good pleasure is that we would, you know, understand him and obey him. And through that obedience, it'll have the fruit of unity within the body of Christ. So verse 14 says, do all things without grumbling or disputing. So is he taking kind of a hard turn or how is that related to this working out your you know, salvation with fear and trembling? What's, how, how is that connected to verses 12 and 13? Yeah, and, and it's, it's sometimes easy to like to look at others, right? You read about the Israelites, and you're like, poor Israelites, right? You know, they had, they had what they needed, but they, they grumbled, right? Sometimes we hear it with like kids complaining. I'll hear it with kids like complaining about things in, in my classroom, but then it's like, I know God is doing that with me. So what's the idea, what's the idea when we grumble, you know? And that's actually, like the root word is actually kind of a word that kind of like sounded like grumble, murmur. It's kind of a... I was like, on my appeal, yeah, that kind of like sounds like what it is. So when we grumble, uh, what is that? 
What is that really like? What are we doing? Okay. Yeah. 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 And now, you know, again, they're usually like, we don't go directly to the source. All right. Often it's like we grumble and complain over a neighbor or grumble and complain over a coworker or grumble and complain over, you know, somebody in our lives, right? But again, as you said, if you step back and say, well, why are those people in our lives? Even the quote-unquote, difficult people in our lives, right? God placed them in our lives for a particular reason. And so we grumble because we don't get what we want the way that we want in the fashion that we think. And what is that ultimately saying is that we're dissatisfied with, with you know, what God has done for us. And when we dispute with others, right, when we argue with others, Yeah, and often when we, like, grumble and complain and even argue and dispute, right, we do so because we feel like our viewpoint is better. But often when mistakes are made, is it usually done purposeful or menacing? Now, we do find, like, that does happen, right? Um, makes for compelling, you know, uh, storylines, right? Where it's like, I can't believe this person, you know, actually did that on purpose. But... A lot of times, like, the things that happen to us aren't some calculated, you know, uh, means of, like, punishing us, right? It's usually because the people who make decisions in our lives are often as limited and frail and (laughs) weak as we are, right? Um, They're not omnipotent. They're not omniscient. They're not omnipresent. And so those things happen, right? And so when we complain, right, it's, again, often unrightly so. And so those are the things, like, you know, that we need to be aware of. And Paul goes directly to that source. Like, hey, here's a way to kind of check your hearts and check yourself to see, you know, how you guys are, um, you know, are uh, interacting with one another. That's a, a great temperature gauge. You know, you can walk into somebody's household Um, you could walk into a place of business. You can walk into really, you know, when I traveled, um, my first job is, uh, after college was I traveled to different fraternity houses. So that's a whole nother story. But, um, when I, when I would do so, I could usually walk in and tell whether these guys got along or didn't, right? Like, did they eat together? Did they, you know, when I walked down the hallways, was everybody's door shut? Uh, or were doors open, it was like the way they interacted with each other, you can just kind of sense and feel, right, how like people behaved. And so this kind of, this kind of idea of, of, you know, again, um, being united can be understood and can be palpable. So does that mean like we don't seek understanding, right? If we feel like we're wronged, if we feel like something has happened to us, 
Is it wrong to then like, you know, find out why? Do you feel like, hey, I don't think that this should have gone the way that it went? Like, do we just like shrug our shoulders and say, well, they're limited. Hopefully next time we'll do it, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Even right, his own circumstances, right, of being in prison, uh, were is to, is to the glory of God. And we're gonna we'll read that in just a second. So I'm glad you kind of put that as a as a bookmark because where does this fit again within the letter? And we'll see in just a second, right? And so this idea of like again, not grumbling or disputing or complaining is not again going and going to your brother when you think he's sinned or going to your sister and and asking you know, um, like understanding why they did what they did. It's not blind obedience. It's thoughtful. And as Paul said, it takes work, right? This idea of working out your salvation kind of comes along with the work that goes along with even being in the body of Christ and sometimes illuminates, you know, where we stand in Christ of how we treat others. And so, what does united look like to others? Well, verse 15, he says, it's, you look like shining lights, and you're without blemish in the midst of a crooked generation. I feel like that's a, a huge, you know, a huge statement right there. Jesus said that others will know that you are my disciples. Why? Yeah, if you love one another. It's almost like if you, if you guys love one another, people will know like, you guys follow Jesus? I mean, it's, it's almost like striking. That's just countercultural for what was happening in his day. You will be a shining light in the darkness. A shining light you can be seen from far away. Jesus used those words, right, of being a light in the darkness. John used those words to describe Jesus. <coughs> he was a light in the darkness. And without blemish, in the midst of a crooked generation, is to understand, again, who we are in the midst of and the fact that we often are pulled to, to giving credence to what our culture says and not to what Christ says. And so Paul says the way we do this is we hold fast to the word of life. And what is that word of life? It's kind of an eloquent way to say it. What's that? Well, the gospel. The gospel, yeah. That's the word of life. Yeah. Right? It provides eternal life through the gospel. Um, in verse 27, we'll read this, you know, Paul says, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. And so what does Paul say would make his life worthy? Okay. And not only that, right? He talks about not laboring in vain. And even if he's poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I'm glad and rejoice with you all. And so Paul says that through their obedience, right, if they hold fast to their faith, right, he's willing to give his life for them and they would happily 
do so. And again, he's repeating something that he wrote just a few sentences back in chapter 1. So if you want to turn to 1, verse 21, Paul says, For to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. So as he's in prison, he's like, you know, to die actually has a, there's something nice about that, right? Um, And so is it because he's in prison? No, because he understands the reality of eternity gets to start sooner than later for him. And so, if he doesn't, though, if he, if he isn't poured out as a drink offering, meaning it's not like Caesar's will to have him put to death, um, and so if he's not going to be, um, you know, executed, right, then he sees that he still has work to do, right? Verse 25, he says, Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. So he, he gets a sense like, I feel like I have some more work to do. Verse 26, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear uh, of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in Him, but also suffer for His sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. So again, this is kind of like how, like when I come to see you, I will be overjoyed if you are united, contending together for the word of life, this gospel of faith, and that will just bring me great joy. But he feels like, you know, there's still work for him to do. So, you know, we've seen that, again, we've been um, given this, this wisdom of how to live a wor- worthy life, one that is patterned after our Savior, one that unites the body of Christ and immerses us in the lives of other, others. And then he's going to end this, this, this part of the letter by showing us kind of examples of worthy ministry companions. So, verse 19 <coughs> He says, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father he has served with me in the gospel. And I hope therefore to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. And I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. I thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death, but God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I'm more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious." So receive him in the Lord with you, uh, with all joy and honor such men, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. So why does he want to send Timothy to them? 
And how is that different from his other, other ministry companions of his? Okay. Okay. So what's the, what's the purpose of sending Timothy? Well, he, he can't go himself. And so why does he want, why does he want to send Timothy? What's the Timothy? Can... <coughs> yeah. He trusts Timothy. He trusts Timothy, right? So why Timothy, right? So that is, he trusts Timothy because what is, how are the other ministry companions described? What's that? They seek their own interests. They seek their own interests. So when he says, right, you know, uh, to uh, humble yourselves and uh, to, you know, See others as more worthy than yourself, right? He's got a he's got a direct line on who he's probably even thinking about and why they're not wanting to to go, whether why they're not wanting to serve, and a whole myriad of reasons is they're seeking their own interests, right? And so, you know, he wants to send Timothy to encourage them, and then for himself to even be encouraged um, by hearing about what's going on. Unfortunately, the others are, you know, self-serving. Is that, a, is that kind of shocking to hear that even his ministry companions, right, are self-serving? It's kind of encouraging, okay? <laughs> okay. Yeah. When, when Paul was in Philippi, do you guys remember what happened? So you had Lydia, you know, and the, the women who were baptized. And then he's kind of walking through the town and he's being harassed by this slave woman who seems demon possessed. And what does Paul do? Cast the demon out, right? And how do the people respond? Or specifically her, the slave owners, her, her owners? <coughs> yeah. Yeah. So he's brought before this, you know, the tribunal, and he's he's beaten and thrown in jail, and then an earthquake happens, <laughs> and uh, you know the the jailer's going to kill himself, and Paul says, "Don't do that," right? And then so they come come to faith, and he's invited to his household, and so all of these things happen, right? And so a lot of good happens in Philippi, but we also understand that. There's a lot of animosity there in Philippi as well, right? It's, it's not necessarily like, you know, everybody in the town is awaiting for him to come. They might, be, they might fear him a little bit, right, because of all the things that happen. But there's, there's a lot of um, satanic uh, activity that we saw, not only that demon-possessed woman, but also there. And so to go to Philippi, right, had some, some risk to it, and some people backed out of that. And so when we think about that, you know, sometimes you say like, right, you know, those in ministry are immune or not susceptible to the same like things that we all are, right? And so the, the, 
the, you know, and sometimes those that are in ministry, right, are in ministry as a job, right? It's just something they do, like, they've been doing it for years, and it's just kind of like something like they don't see, like, what value it is, and so doing things out of self-interest. And so Paul, again, reminds the Philippians, right, that I'm sending Timothy and I'm sending Epaphroditus, right, who feel that calling in their life because they feel like serving, you know, the Philippians are more important than any risk that they have. And so, you know, we'll, we'll look at that idea a little bit later um, when, we, when we talk about kind of leadership. But it's the idea that it's, it happens even in ministry, and Paul kind of just makes them aware of that. He doesn't celebrate it by any means, but he makes them aware of that. But he does want them to rejoice in, um, you know, the men that he's sending. And so what do you kind of pick up on regarding Paul's heart, you know, for the, for the Philippians? And there's a reality, too, that, you know, the Lord has even put Paul in his place, right, in prison, so that Paul would have to rely on others to be able to do the work of the ministry, that it's just not Paul's doing by himself. So he's concerned, concerned of the fact that he would send these other men. And so you guys have touched on a few of the words. What other words would you describe Timothy and Epaphroditus? Okay. How would you how do you get that idea? Others, 
Yeah, Paul even says, right, that he is, he is anxious, right, um, over, over them. But then I thought we were not to be anxious, right? So what does, Paul, what does Paul talk about anxiety and how to deal with anxiety? It's like two chapters later, right? You know, so where he says, you know, with, with all thanksgiving, right, that we are to, you know, with prayer and supplication and all thanksgiving, um, go to the Lord. Yeah. And the dread about joy. Yeah. So humanity. Yeah. Yeah, because it's it's people, all right? And so that's, you know, again, in the Philippians we don't see anything necessarily like concerning. There are some in chapter four, like, you know, some some people that were arguing and disputing, so he kind of like directly names a couple people. He says that there are some people who kind of deserted him and, and some of those things and the, the reality of that, right? But in the end, like, he wants to make sure that they're, you know, when he's gone, and there will be that time, and I think this prison time is a reality at some point, he's like, now his heart's shifting towards, I want to be with the Lord, and I'm, I'm ready to leave this, this life, that when he leaves this life, that they're in good hands, which is really amongst each other, that they are, again, united and so the only way to do that is to walk on, in, in this world to love one another and to put others, right, again, before their own interests. And we see that played out in the life of Timothy, certainly with Paul and then Epaphroditus and just some of the descriptions of what that looks like. And so what's kind of an important first step, though, we kind of like mind and look back, is to not grumble and dispute, right? And when we do the work of the Lord, um, we are to then love others abundantly, right, is more important than ourselves. So hopefully this is a good kind of a framework for our kind of understanding. And then we're going to look uh, next time at um, Ephesians chapter 5, right, when Paul says we submit ourselves to one another. And so how does that look? How does that kind of play out within all these different groups? And uh, how does this idea of, of being united also kind of go hand-to-hand um, and work itself out uh, in the lives of, of everyone else that we hold near and dear to us. So uh, we'll talk about that um, in a couple weeks.